Good morning, everyone. The Mountain of the Lord, Chapter 4. In the last days, the Mountain of the Lord's Temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and people will stream to it. Come, let us go up to the Mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion. The word... Oh, sorry. Oh, that's better. <laughs> the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords and plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Every man will sit under his own vine and under his own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. All the nations may walk in the name of their gods, and we will walk in the name of the Lord, our God, forever and ever. The Lord's plan. In that day, declares the Lord, I will gather the lame, and I will assemble the exiles, and those who are brought to grief, I will make the lame a remnant. Those driven away a strong nation. The Lord will drop, rule over them in Mount Zion from that day and forever. As for you, O watchtower of the flock, O stronghold, the daughter of Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to the daughter of Jerusalem. Why do you now cry aloud? Have you no king? Has your counsellor perished? That pain seizes you like that of a woman in labour. Writhe in agony, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labour. For now you must leave the city to camp in the open field. You will go to Babylon. There will, you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you out of the land of your enemies. But now many nations are gathered against you. They say, let her be desiled, defiled. Let our eyes gloat over Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan. He who gathers them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Rise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will give you horns of iron. I will give you hoofs of bronze, and you will break to pieces many nations. You will devote their ill-gotten gains to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of all earth. Now today, uh, there's a little bit of an echo in this microphone, how's that sound? Okay, sounds great, good. Uh, today, I'm already off the blocks okay because nobody's snoring during my sermon. So, so far so good. So if anybody starts to have a little bit of a, had a late night last night watching the soccer and is uh, needing a bit of a snore, somebody give them a blanket and a pillow and just sort of tuck them in a bit. Uh, let us uh, come to the Lord in a time of prayer now, let us pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you for this time we share together. Thank you that uh, we can think about your word and how it applies to our lives. And we pray, Lord, today that um, we grow together as your people. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the introduction, you can see I've written there, there's some good news and bad news. Have you ever heard anyone say anything like that to you before? There's 
We've got some good news and uh, we've got some bad news. And then often it's followed by the next question is, um, uh, which do you want to hear first? Do you want the good news first or the bad news first? Uh, typically, I, I like to get the bad news first. That way I'm hoping that the good news is going to soften the blow. I like the ones where they say, I've got some good news and some even better news. That's always a nice one. Uh, but you might see these kind of examples. The bad news is uh, the lawn needs mowing. Uh, the good news is the kids now know how to mow the lawn. The bad news is uh, I need to pay the kids. <laughs> but the good news is they, they don't really know what the market rate is for a lawn to be mowed. <laughs> so I don't pay them too much. No, I'm, I'm not telling the truth there. That's actually a joke. I, I, they sting me for the price on the lawn and, uh, and I, pay them, I pay them well. So. <laughs> but in today's passage, it actually plays out a bit differently to that. We don't tend to get the, um, the bad news first. We get two-thirds of it's the good news that comes first. And so uh, as we look at this good news, it's a message about anticipating better days to come. And that's also the title of this talk. So let us now come and see uh, the message of better days to come for the, the first readers of Micah chapter 4. And then... Uh, We'll see what this means for us as we think about ourselves and our lives before the Lord and as we anticipate better days to come as well. In point A, you'll notice that ultimately there's good news for the people of God. You're seeing it there in chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. In the distant future, Micah writes about a, a wonderful time, a rich time. Uh, it's a time when there's an expectation that the touchstone between heaven and earth, where God meets his people, will be the highest place above all high places. We see it there in verse 1. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and peoples will stream to it. Now, just as uh, the Garden of Eden had uh, the waters flowing out of it, uh, we take it that it was in a high place. Uh, when Moses received the law, he went up to the top of Mount Sinai. And later, when the Lord's temple is built uh, on Mount Zion, the uh, high places were the touchstone of heaven and earth between God and people. And the idea of an establishment of the, the mountain of the Lord... And the Lord's temple, as something permanent, was something that the people looked forward to. In fact, uh, it was sung about in the Song of Moses in Exodus 15. Moses sings, You'll bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance. The place, O Lord, you have made for your dwelling. The sanctuary, O Lord, your hands have established. So this is anticipating uh, that God is going to dwell with his people in this, this high place. I'm not sure the uh, tune uh, that, that that little verse was sung to. Uh, I tried it with Blowing in the Wind, uh, but I found it sounded better with She'll Be Coming Around the Mountain. Uh, you see what you can put it to later. 
Anyway, the expectations is in the last days, all kinds of people are going to come to come to the Lord, to the house of Jacob. This is the temple. People would come to God and be together as the people of God in a very special time. One of the distinctive things about this message here in Micah is it's not just for the northern tribes and the southern tribes of Israel. This is a message anticipating uh, that all kinds of people throughout the world will come to the Lord. We see there in verse 2, many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. And it's going to be a time, a good time, of wisdom and justice reigning. In verse 3, he will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. This kind of situation of justice reigning, wisdom characterising life there, it reminds us of the kingdom that's foreshadowed back in the Old Covenant in the time of Solomon. Do you remember Solomon was shown to be a wise ruler? He could distinguish when two ladies came to Solomon. Apparently one of them... Uh, there were two prostitutes apparently one of them rolled on a baby in the night and the baby died and she took uh, the dead baby and put it with the other ladies um, uh, with the other lady and took her baby and there was a fight about uh, who owned the baby Uh, and then in the account Solomon uh, finds a way to uh, work out who whose baby this is going to be this is uh, an example of how Solomon showed his wisdom that was characteristic in that time But here we're given the impression that uh, even greater wisdom will reign. Greater wisdom uh, because God himself will be settling disputes, not just, uh, if you like, domestic things, but things even amongst nations. And so this will be a time of God's wisdom and justice reigning. This magnificent time in the future will be characterised by an end to hostility and the awful threats of war. War will be a thing that's left behind. In fact, the uh, weapons will become unnecessary. The the swords will be turned into the plowshares and the spears into the pruning hooks. Those weapons will be for only agricultural purposes, for them to collect their pomegranates, get their grapes, figs and their dates. And there's an anticipation of better days to come when nation won't be taking up sword against nation and they won't be training for war either, either. In that distant future, Micah looks forward to a time of peace, a shalom, I think is the Jewish word that's characterising the situation, where instead of in the time of Micah, people are taking each other's land and and there's poor in the land getting uh, ripped off. In verse 4, every man will sit under his own vine and under his own fig tree. No one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. And so we have a picture of balance and harmony a time when people will have the things that they need. There won't be uh, people deprived. And there's an eternity that's in view there in verse 5. We will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. So this is a a wonderful picture that uh, Micah's bringing to the people about a, a, a wonderful future. Even in the shorter terms, prior to that time, there's some uh, other great expectations too. I'm in mean, point B in the sermon in verses 4, uh, chapter 4, 6 to 10. This uh, distant time of peace and happiness is pictured, but it comes after a more difficult experience of God's justice, and yet 
there's going to be this period where they walk through that justice and walk home out of exile. Uh, in verse 6, in that day, declares the Lord, I will gather the lame, I'll assemble the exiles and those I've brought to grief. So there's an expectation that the exiles are going to be gathered and brought home. Verse 7, I will make the lame a remnant, those driven away a strong nation. The Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from that day and forever. So there's a, a return from being exiled to Babylon, which is a horror story, but that, that return is something they're anticipating and looking forward to. And we see something of this in verse 8. As they return from exile, they're looking forward to coming home and being under God's king once again. As for you, O watchtower of the flock, O stronghold of the daughter of Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to the daughter of Jerusalem. And whilst they wait for those better days when God's king reigns once again in Jerusalem, in the promised land, sadly, Micah thinks about the more short-term situation, which is described in verses 9 and 10 as, as a, a woman in labour pains to describe their experience of judgment. And we see in verse 10, you will go to Babylon, but again, the, the good news, there you will be rescued. The Lord will redeem you out of the hands of your enemies. And so Mike is sort of dancing between two ideas here. There's the, the sadness of being exiled, but also looking beyond that to the, the return. And so for now, as we move to the end of this chapter in verses 11 to 13, we see uh, the more bad news, though, in verse 11, but now many nations are gathered against you. They say, let her be defiled, let our eyes gloat over Zion. And so the bad news is, in the, in the short term, uh, there is going to be a storm that comes and a ferocious storm hits, does, does some damage before things calms down. In these next verses, um, 11 to 13, we note that none of this escapes God's will. He's in control of all these things. In fact, other nations will ultimately uh, be judged as well by the Lord. And it seems through his people that will be one of the ways it happens at the end. So what are the first hearers to make of this section of the scriptures? What are they to understand from this message in Micah chapter 4? Well, on the longer-term horizon, uh, a joyful time's anticipated of being uh, with the Lord and under his reign forever. That's the, that's the longer-term horizon. Eventually, there'll be a return from their time in exile, a restoration for the people to be back in the presence of the Lord with his king. And yet, in the short term, uh, there's the, the sadness of an exile of the people of God to Babylon... And that's the consequences of their unfaithfulness to the Lord that's been written about in this book that we've been acquainted with over the last couple of weeks. Their idolatry, their social injustice, their hard hearts to the Lord and their failure to live with God as their king. And so these things that are written about here, this exile, it, it actually plays out in history as Israel experienced exile to Babylon. And yet, 
many also returned later to Judea. But what does the New Testament say about the fulfilment of these things and how does Jesus fit into the story to fulfill these expectations as well? Well, we saw in Micah chapter 4, verse 6 to 10, that the Israelites looked forward to a time when they'd be uh, returning from exile and dwelling in the midst uh, of the Lord in Jerusalem with the Lord at the temple. They looked forward to uh, another golden age, actually, in the Promised Land, like the days uh, when King Solomon reigned, when King David reigned. They looked forward to those, those sort of more glorious times. And, and so... In history, what we find out is King Cyrus, a Persian, restores uh, many Israelites back to the land. But the glory days seem to elude them. Uh, By the time Jesus comes, around some 500 years later, Israel returns from their physical exile from Babylon back to the Promised Land. But when we encounter Jesus and the New Testament, we find out that although they're living in the land, they're living under the power of Rome. Is that the kind of thing they were looking forward to? Was that what they were expecting the end game to wash up like? Living under Roman occupation. Well, some commentators have pointed out that although there's uh, clearly a physical return from exile that's happened, there seemed to remain something of an exile from God at a spiritual level. It might be called a, a theological exile. For the, in the glory days of David and Solomon, God's presence was there in the midst of his people. Just as the spirit of the Lord led them out of Egypt through the wilderness wanderings, God was at the centre of the people in the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. He was there in the midst of the camp in the tabernacle. That's where the presence of the Lord was. And they were camped around him. When they settled in the promised land, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And we read in 1 Kings, when the priests could not stand a minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. But this had not happened in the second temple in the time of Jesus. At one level, we could make a case to say that Israel is still distant from God, living in the land, but they're living under Caesar's kingship, not under God's king. And that's the situation that Jesus comes into. He came, as he tells us in the early sections of Mark, to bring in the kingship of God. That's what we see in Mark 1.15. He says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God or the reign of God is right at the door in the ministry of Jesus. God is visiting his people in the ministry of Jesus. This is a special time when God's king comes to reign. And this time that Jesus ministers is actually pictured in terms of a return from exile. In fact, Jesus quotes uh, a passage that talks about the return from exile. We saw in Micah chapter 4 a message about you will be rescued there, the Lord will redeem you out of the hands of your enemies. Micah speaks about it, but he's not the only Old Testament prophet who speaks about a return from exile. In Isaiah chapter 61, Jesus quotes this passage at the start of his ministry. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim 
freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Jesus reads those verses which speak about the return of exile from Babylon, proclamation of liberty to captives, liberty to the oppressed. And he concludes by saying to the people today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In the ministry of Jesus, people start to return to God. They start to return to God from a spiritual exile and come home to God. In fact, all kinds of people are distant from God and they return from their exile of sorts and now come to be close to God as they come to Jesus. We learn about this in Luke chapter 15 when we learn that even the tax collectors and the sinners were drawing near to Jesus and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law grumbled about this situation. This man receives sinners and eats with them, to which Jesus told them three parables. Do you remember which ones? The parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin and the lost son. And in the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son, the son goes somewhere, doesn't he? Do you remember where he goes? He goes to a distant country, outside the land. This is not Israel that he's going to because he's there feeding the piggies. He's, uh, he's, this is a picture of the son that goes off into uh, exile, people distant from God. That's the picture of the son, and that son is a picture of Israel. And yet as this lost son comes home to his father and he repents, Coming home and drawing near to his father, he receives forgiveness. And as all kinds of people come to Jesus, they're drawing near to God. As God's people return home from exile, they return to be near the Lord. In the ministry of Jesus, God was once again visiting his people as he dwelt in their midst. As mentioned in the past, God dwelt with his people in the tabernacle, in the wilderness, the wanderings. He dwelt with his people when the glory of the Lord filled the temple. He was, his presence was there in the midst of the people and he was there as king. But Jesus comes to Israel and as he does, once again, God is drawing near to his people and he's offering them forgiveness. Micah anticipated a time when God's king would come. We saw it there in Micah chapter 4, verse 8, a prophecy about that time. The former dominion would be restored to you. Kingship will come to the daughter of Jerusalem. That's what Micah said. He's anticipating kingship coming back to the promised land. And Jesus picks up on this reality, doesn't he? In Luke chapter 19, he came to the temple and he wept over Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple that was coming. And he laments the fact that on the whole, they didn't recognise the time of God coming to them. In Luke 19:44, other translations say, because you did not know the time of your visitation. They did not recognise the time of God's coming to visit them. Leadership in particular missed God's coming to them. And they didn't recognise that God was visiting in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. On the whole, they didn't, but some did. In Luke chapter 18, 
blind Bartimaeus heard that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by and so he called out to Jesus for healing, saying, I'll do a Bartimaeus, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And they told him to be quiet and he shouted all the, la- all the louder, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the irony of this is that uh, we note that the leadership didn't recognise God's king visiting them. The leaders are the ones who are supposed to know. They're the literate ones. They should have been teaching the people. The irony is the leaders didn't know, but blind Bartimaeus, he can see that God's king is visiting. This reference to son of David, it's not sort of just getting his name trotted out. He's referring to the fact that Jesus is God's king who sits on the throne of David forever. And blind Bartimaeus recognises that God's king is visiting his people. Jesus comes to bring in forgiveness and the return of spiritual exile. People who are distant from God are coming back closer to God. Jesus comes to bring in that, that good time, those good days that were anticipated by Micah as he comes to bring in the kingdom of God. Well, what's this message for us today? Well, in sum, the ministry of Jesus, in the ministry of Jesus, God draws near to his people. And as people come to Jesus, they're returning from their spiritual exile, from being distant from God. They enjoy a time when God forgives sins. Blind Bartimaeus could see this, that kingship came to the daughter of Jerusalem. But the question is, blind Bartimaeus could see it, but can we see it? Are we clear in our convictions that Jesus was God's king to come? The servant king who came and visited 2,000 years ago into the world, who came, died and rose again for our sins to bring us to God. Are we clear in our convictions that we are close to God because we've come and drawn near to Jesus and we enjoy his gift of forgiveness and anticipate those better days in the kingdom of God? The fact is um, we do need God's king, don't we? We all need Jesus, the saviour of the world, because each one of us in our own way has fallen short and failed to love the Lord as we should. Our thoughts betray us, don't they, friends? And we pretend. Think about this. Do we try to pretend to others that we're more godly than we are? Do we try to pretend sometimes that we're more holy? Do we sometimes try to pretend that we're we're more in control and sovereign over life than we really are? Yet the reality is God knows our hearts. He knows what we're like. We can pretend to each other but God knows us and we know that um, we're not really in control of all all things, only God's sovereign. In fact, we don't actually even like these parts of the sermon where we think about the areas that we're weak in, the areas that we, we could repent in. We don't like to think too much about how we can be uh, ungodly, self-serving, and a bit too self-absorbed. It's true, we can be selfish and self-obsessed and be a bit reluctant 
to serve the Lord as God. And we show in our actions that we don't actually always remember God. At the mealtime, do we always give thanks to God? Do we remember God when we travel away to, to pray? We can sadly be people who actually forget about God and that can characterise some of our lives. Well, we're people who've actually turned back to God um, and enjoy living in his grace. The challenge for us is to, to continue to grow more godly, grow to be more like Jesus, to work at our consistency in walking with the Spirit. But other people still need to hear about a return from being distant from God and they still need to come to terms with Jesus to enjoy life with God. In fact, the Apostle Paul reminds the um, people at Athens of this truth too. He reminds them that God won't tolerate rejection and serving all kinds of idols. And he says to them, In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And he goes on to remind those people of God's judgment day in verse 31, for he set a day when he'll judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed. He's given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. The prodigal world needs to see and understand that they need Jesus to come back close to God to have that distance between people and God come to an end. All people need to come to Jesus, the Son of God, for life and forgiveness. And as they do, the assurance is that all's well, that they will be saved. By coming to Jesus, our spiritual exile ends. We receive the forgiveness of sins and anticipate good times to come in the kingdom of God. Well, when it comes to uh, hearing good news and bad news, I really prefer the good news, by the way. (laughs) Life gets complicated in a fallen world, doesn't it? We have health problems, money problems, relationship problems. Every time we sin, it brings sorrow into the world. We experience boredom, disappointments, discouragement and all kinds of uncertainties. I'm working through my problems and I'm sure you'll be working through your list of problems as well. But the good news from God's word today is that things won't always be like this, friends. They're not always going to be like this. Things will change. And the longer-term future that we saw in Micah chapter 4 turns out to be a very victorious and glorious future. Micah spoke about terms of peace and contentment for the people in his time, things that they could understand, sitting under his own vine and under his own fig tree. Well, Jesus comes to bring in God's kingdom in all its fullness. Jesus comes to bring us home to God and he establishes that hope for those who have faith in him. And as the Apostle Paul looks forward, looks past rather the adversity of this age, and anticipates better days to come, he reminds and encourages the church in Corinth with some words. He says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us 
an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. By comparison, that eternal glory is fantastic compared to some of the the struggles we've got to work through. And he says, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And so may God help us to be among those people who continue walking with the Lord, pressing on with our faith in Jesus to the end of the race. Let's be among those people who inherit that that future that's an unseen future and enjoy that glorious hope that was spoken about in Micah chapter 4. Let us come to the Lord in a time of prayer. Let us pray. Our Lord God, we give you thanks for the anticipation of better days to come when we're uh, with you in glory. Lord, we give you thanks that um, even though we've been distant from you, we give you thanks for, that as we come to Jesus, uh, we come to meet you, we come to enjoy the forgiveness of our sins through the work of Jesus and what he's done, dying and rising for our sins. Lord, we give you thanks that we've come to an end of spiritual exile and that we're um, in your grace, in your presence. And Lord, as we live now, we pray that you'd help us to persevere as your people together and we pray that we would continue to make it to the end of the race that you've called us to and to enjoy inheriting the fullness of your kingdom at the end. Uh, We give you thanks for this day that we can be encouraged by these words and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.